You're listening to Think Sustainability. I'm Lawrence Bull. In this episode, we're going to ask whether capitalism can exist alongside a healthy climate. The climate that can support human civilization. We live in a world of increasingly complex systems. Capitalism is complex. Our climate is complex. These systems can be overwhelming. Their complexity makes them unpredictable, even to experts. And that can lead us to avoid trying to understand them and to find solutions for the problems these systems produce. But this episode is about simplicity. It's about understanding the simple properties of complex systems and how we can manage problems that are beyond our human capacity to understand. First, let me tell you about a game. This game will help us understand how complex systems work. Capitalism, climate change, or anything with rules and participants. It's called Conway's Game of Life. Its inventor called it a zero-player game. A person sets it up, and then the game plays itself. So imagine a blank grid on a screen. You can fill in as many squares as you like. There are only four rules that determine what happens next. A square with too few neighbours dies. It goes back to being blank. But a square with too many neighbours also dies. The right amount of neighbours, if a square wants to live, is two or three. But, and this is what gives the game its cult following, if a blank cell has exactly three neighbours, it becomes a square. It comes to life, as it were. This may seem like a boring game, pointless even, but each iteration of the game is like a frame in a film. When they play out in sequence, the results can be mesmerising. Some look like an old arcade game, with spaceships flying around, shooting, or, say, creating more spaceships that also start shooting. Or sometimes they look like algal blooms, randomly growing and shrinking simultaneously. Other times it looks like a psychedelic wonderland with incredible changing geometry. And when you zoom out, it creates a mega pattern that bears no relation to the smaller patterns within. I could go on forever about all of the animations this simple game can produce, because they are literally infinite. The game of life has been around for more than 50 years, and people are still finding countless amounts of new patterns all the time. It basically shows that you can get recurring or interesting patterns just through very, very simple instructions. For me, that's the definition of a complex system, a system in which the beings, for want of a better word, in the system interact with each other and modify their behaviour based upon the behaviour of other creatures, beings, and also on the behaviour of the group as a whole, the system as a whole. And that's really important because there is no living system which is not a complex system in that sort of case. Okay, I'm Jonathan Marshall. I work in the social and political sciences at UTS. I do research into renewable energy transitions. People have used this to explain the way that flocks of birds swirl through the air and have those beautiful patterns. And the birds are basically operating by very simple rules. And of course, these rules aren't explicit. You know, no bird has ever sat down and thought, oh, I'll do it this way. But nevertheless, it also shows the possibility that you can get emergent patterns coming out of individual behavior, which is not planned 
by any of the individuals, and yet which shapes those individuals' behaviour again. Conway's game of life has a remarkable property. It isn't possible to know when or if a new pattern is going to transition from chaos into order. A game could go for a thousand iterations and then suddenly die off or fall into a predictable order. Or it could just keep on going for millions more iterations. There are equations that prove that there is no way to know what happens next. Now, naturally, of course, it does reach some kinds of equilibrium. And that's quite important. We need to know about equilibrium states. But also, with things like climate change and evolution and so on, we know, need to know about disequilibrium states, the states which actually provoke change. And there's often people talk about complex adaptive systems. And I object to that sort of use of the term because it implies that everyone will live happily ever after because we're all adapted. But the system can adapt in such a way that, say, humans or birds or whatever are no longer essential to the functioning of that system. That's the adaptation. You're out. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I'm not saying it's likely, but I'm saying that that's a certain possibility. And it's one that we shouldn't miss. So I tend to talk about complex maladaptive systems to get through to people that, from our point of view, the system result may be completely maladaptive. And, you know, I mean, it's looking more and more clear that if we go to a temperature, average temperature increase of about three degrees, then it's going to be incredibly maladaptive for our civilization. Okay, and civilizations all over the planet will start collapsing under the stress of accumulated expense. And I think that it's useful to realize that not only is there a great deal of uncertainty about what will happen, because people often say, oh, if you're not certain, you can't do anything, or if you're not certain, then you're wrong. But in fact, the nature of complex systems from the human point of view is that they are always uncertain, always incredibly difficult to predict. We can predict trends such as, you know, if temperature keeps rising and we keep emitting greenhouse gas emissions, then the system will get worse. Precisely how worse, we don't know. Now, I'm not breaking any news in saying that our climate was in a state of equilibrium and now it's being pushed into disequilibrium with the release of previously fossilised greenhouse gases. Here's where we focus on the other complex system in this discussion. Capitalism. Like a pattern in Conway's game of life, at the root of capitalism's complexity are a handful of simple rules. According to Samuel A. Chambers, a political economist at Johns Hopkins University, capitalism has five rules. Money must beget more money. Markets regulate prices. Producers must produce profitable commodities. Technical change and innovation are required. And crisis is unavoidable. There are parts of the capitalist system which are self-destructive. And this is observable in that we do not seem to be able to adapt to the idea of not having as much fossil fuel energy as possible. Capitalism as a, or, and developmentalism, the whole idea that you need increased material standards of life, demands essentially free, cheap energy. It cannot work without it. So 
When we say that capitalism is a complex system, we are saying that it is a system which continually modifies how it interacts with other members of the capitalist system and things that are formerly outside the capitalist system. There's no border between the capitalist system and the world because you're constantly extracting materials from the world, you're constantly dumping waste and pollution, and you're dispersing minerals into the world. And so capitalism is gradually and slowly destroying its own basis for survival. To use the earlier terms, capitalism is a maladaptive system for human beings. That doesn't mean that it hasn't got good points. In fact, part of the problem is that because it has had good points, people are reluctant to change that. Okay, so it's again, it's one of these situations in which a small amount of something is quite good, quite healthy or whatever, but large amounts of it completely disrupt its own survival capacity. In 1970, shortly after the game of life's invention, the first infinite pattern was discovered. There's something disturbing about watching the growth of an infinite pattern. It creates a flurry of new activity in one or more areas. It creates some static squares and then moves outwards and repeats this behavior. The effect looks like an army of insects eating up the available resources and moving ever outward, spitting out detritus in its wake. The pattern of capitalism is even more concerning. Capitalism explicitly requires exponential growth. Agents in capitalism sell products for profit, then invest those profits into the production of more products for more profit ad infinitum. A pattern of exponential, never-ending growth is fine as a thought experiment, but in the real world, it only works while you have the resources to match. I read, and perhaps it was something that you wrote, that one of the defining characteristics of capitalism was economy of scale. And always just angling, doing whatever you can to get that edge, that economic edge to to save and pocket that money. And at some point, I guess, it, it breaks down because if you're constantly growing and the scale constantly has to go up and up and up with greater and greater efficiency, at some point, whatever constraints you're working with, whatever environment you're working within becomes overwhelmed. It's just I guess it's just mathematics. Yeah, no, well, I mean, that's, that's the problem is that we've had destructive economies. You know, capitalism isn't the only form of destructive economy, but normally it's localised to a fairly small area. What we have is the problem that our production and distribution and so on and extraction, extraction is another form of destruction, gets to the stage in which we encounter the planetary boundaries, The point is that once you exceed those limits of ecological functioning, the chance of maintaining an equilibrium system, the kind of equilibrium that we used to, is gone. You will get wild fluctuations until it it settles down into something new. Okay, so what we're getting here in, in capitalism is this constant need for growth, for taking more material from the earth, from fishing more in the sea, 
and we are way exceeding the capacity of the Earth to replace that. You will have heard, I think, of what's this something called like Earth Footprint Day or something. That's the day in which of the year in which we have already used everything that the Earth mm. will regenerate in a year. Okay, and it's getting, it's going further and further back towards the start of the year. I looked this up. It's called Earth Overshoot Day. And these days, it occurs around late July. We are removing stuff that we cannot replace. And that eventually will have to lead to some sort of social crash as well as ecological crash because society depends upon its ecology. The retort is usually, okay, well, we can develop technology, we can develop renewable energy. Humanity has encountered problems before and the market finds a way to solve them and promotes some sort of technology to promote greater efficiency and user resources. Yeah, I tend to think that's a bit of what anthropologists call a cargo cult, which is basically that magical stuff happens and we're all safe as a result. But basically there is nothing in capitalism or any other system that guarantees a technology will appear when you want it to appear, that it will appear in time for it to be useful, that it will not cost so much that we can't actually use it practically, that it won't consume more energy than it gives out, and that it won't have unintended consequences. I mean, that's the big thing that you can always say about a complex system is that actions in that system have the potential for consequences you are not expecting, and they might be quite destructive. We may produce the saving technology, but we certainly cannot rely on the market to produce it. And one of the things that's been argued by quite a lot of people is that all the major technological innovations of the last 50 years or whatever, nuclear energy is earlier than that, but the internet and so on, have all come from state investment. Okay, it's making the original materials because there's no money in something that doesn't work. And then when the corporate sector takes it up when it's shown to work. Who would not have thought that the internet would be big? Well, up until 1992, there was absolutely no corporate interest in it whatsoever. And then they tried to appropriate the internet, which mm. they largely have done. But ingenuity, human ingenuity is great. And I'm not going to say it couldn't possibly happen. But I'm saying that we need to work with the technologies we already have and solve those problems before we start spending huge amounts of money on technologies we don't have. One of the things with a complex system, I would say, is work with what you've already got. Okay, and renewables possibly can solve the problem. Even nuclear energy could possibly solve the problem, only it takes way too long to build, and the price is enormous. Regarding unintended consequences, complexity theory seems to be rife with discussion of unintended consequences, yeah. right? You've got a simple set of rules and then who knows what pops out at the other end. Yeah. If you want to manipulate the results to achieve your goals, you can have a what's called a top-down approach, as I understand mm -hmm. it, and yeah. just correct me if I'm getting anything wrong, which, as I understand it, means that you go in and you try to stem the bleeding or whatever, you can, yeah. not over here, redirect that over there, see what we can do over there. And you're kind of constantly playing catch up and constantly trying to see what it does next. Or there's a bottom-up approach, which is 
alter the fundamental rules driving the system. It seems that politicians under a capitalist system, we seem to be constantly applying a top-down approach, trying to play catch-up, and that won't fix unintended consequences. We will always have unintended consequences and they will get larger and more problematic, more difficult to deal with inevitably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I say is that once you have recognised the the ubiquity of unintended consequences, you need to change our whole political approach and embrace a kind of experimental politics and recognise that you don't know what's going to happen and recognise that everything that you put forward is a hypothesis about how stuff works and then you look for how it doesn't work when you implement it and you change it. Now, in current Western politics, that's considered to be a sign of weakness, vacillating, backflip, all that sort of stuff, right? But it's actually how you deal with a complex system. Because you can't know what's happening until you've done something, you have to then react to what is happening. So it's much more like a craft or a sculpturing approach where you change the shape of something and then you see how it reflects upon your conception about that something and you do some more. Okay, so you do things in gradual steps and you have to look for the unintended consequences because one of the great ways that we've learned to approach unintended consequences is to pretend they're not there or just simply deny it. It is, of course, very difficult to know what kind of effects rule changes will have, right? So I would say you've got to be working on all levels to really succeed. However, I would also say it's very, very clear to me, at least from my research, that we cannot any longer rely on the state or business to save us, right? You have to take local action. You have to find people that you know you agree with and that you can work with and have some kind of vision. In complexity theory, there are more ways for things to go wrong, really, than there are to to achieve your narrow goals. And I mean, in terms of like the survival of human civilization, I'd say in the scheme of things, that's a narrow goal. Yeah. Is that right? That there are more ways that things that can go wrong once you start altering the fundamentals? Gregory Bateson, in one of his dialogues, had a really neat analogy for what we consider to be disorder, right? Think of yourself laying out a table service right? Four people. Now, there's only one way for that to be right. There are millions of ways it can be wrong, right? So there's always more room for things to go wrong than things to go right by human definitions, right? So if we try and deliberately force something to happen, we are going to almost certainly generate something that's that's wrong, that doesn't work for us. And then we may use more force to generate something that's, you know, especially if you have people disagreeing about what the perfect order of a table service is, okay? And you have politics intruding into it. So that's one problem. However, I tend to think that we probably need something more like a sort of Taoist philosophy where you go with the flow of things, where you work with them rather than against them, where you note the feedback that you're getting and you remain calm about what is happening because that is what is happening and 
getting upset about it certainly don't change what is happening. And so you work closely with the materia, you work closely with other people, you learn, you observe, you sit calmly and you do stuff. Sometimes Taoism is taken as a very passive philosophy, but in fact, it is a philosophy where you learn by interacting with things and you don't assume that you know what is going to happen. As I understand it, there's no avoiding complex systems. We're not going to say, okay, capitalism is a complex system. Let's make it a simple one or let's introduce a simple one or something. I don't think that's realistic. But I think your work speaks to let's reduce the stakes of that complex system. Let's reduce the scale of those negative externalities so they don't destroy us all. And then perhaps let's trial lots of smaller complex systems and see what works and throw away what doesn't. Is yeah, that correct? That's pretty pretty close. I think there are things that we could do with the bigger complex system, right? We could say you cannot produce more greenhouse gases than can be absorbed by the environment. Okay, we could stop using petroleum. It would be extremely fraught, Right, but we could do that. We could also say to people that the aim is for agriculture to be self-sustaining, right? Not for it to require heaps and heaps of fertilizer that is imported from somewhere else. We could say that we need to do agriculture that looks after the land. And as far as I can tell, there are more and more farmers who are realizing that this is just common sense. That's what they thought they were doing, you know, looking after the land so that they could produce more crops. We could say that the amount of energy that we can produce is not infinite. And we can say that the amount of material goods that we all need is less than what we have for most people, not for all people, but for a lot of people. You did a study on three towns in rural New South Wales, yeah. looking at their attempts toward climate mitigation. Yeah. And it sort of reminded me of the story of the three little pigs. Oh, okay. <laughs> it seemed like it was modelled on that. <laughs> I hadn't actually thought of that, but that's neat. <laughs> Can you tell us about that? Okay. Well, basically, the three country towns were Lismore, Narrabri, and essentially Bega. Lismore had the most ambitious targets. The council wanted to essentially be completely renewable, powered by 2023. They found that the regulations for doing anything like this were completely impenetrable. It took them something like four years to work out a method of doing this. They were held back by the Corporations Act and so on. So they eventually ended up with a system which was, I think, 99 kilowatts or something, because it had to be under 100 kilowatts or a different form of subsidy kicked into place. They then had to organise a way of getting money from people. And because of the Corporations Act, that meant a very small number of people could be involved. Then you got the floods and council deficit. And basically, these small things made it all fall apart. And part of that reason, I think, was that it ended up having to be top-down driven by the council. They couldn't actually get that much purchase from the community, not because the community wasn't interested, but because the regulations stopped them. Okay, in Narrabri, of course, you have what people call the resources curse. You have coal mines, you have gas projects, 
and so on. So the state government and the federal government are supporting the coal and the gas, and they're not really interested in community energy. In theory, our surveys show that quite a lot of people are very keen to participate in community energy. They don't know what to do. Fossil fuels, according to many business people, bring sustainability. And they consider sustainability to be jobs in town because the population of Narrabri has declined. Renewables don't produce that kind of level of work once you've established them. In some ways, that's their virtue. Once you've established them, you just let them generate. You might clean the panels every now and again. You might have to fix up little bits, but that's very low-level work. And then finally, in Bega, particularly in a place called Tarthra, which is on the coastline, there was an organisation called Clean Energy for Eternity. And they had an absolutely neat system for getting community energy out there. They raised money, they bought panels, and they stuck them on public buildings. Nobody is going to object to people sticking panels on public buildings. Public buildings went for it. They raised more money because people paid what they had saved in the electricity bill to them so they could keep spreading. By doing that, they could demonstrate that solar energy worked, which, of course, people were a bit sceptical about. And this arrangement got them around all the regulations because they don't have to have any business organisation. They don't have to declare profits. And the agreement is basically straightforward and personal. They actively demonstrated to council that there was local support for climate action. So the point there is, I think, that what they're operating on is to essentially avoid the rules and to engage in what I call climate generosity, which is you don't wait for equitable response. You don't wait for other people to do stuff. You don't think about whether it's going to penalise you or not. You just give stuff and it's up to who you give it to, what they do with it and how they use it. And by doing that, giving you establish a base and you establish that it works. Mm. I mean, if you live in a country town, local areas in the city as well, you can start agitating for community energy. You can find out what that involves. The more that people can do this sort of thing locally, then the more that they're demonstrating voter support for actual real action, which is then likely to get the state to change as well. Not only will we have the energy to use, but hopefully some of the community will know how to repair those systems. So we get more resilience. People can survive for longer in a normal life under conditions of crisis. So that would be how I would say bottom-up work can actually begin. I prefer the idea of, rather than talking about justice, we talk about fairness and helping. We don't say India and China are polluting like mad, let's pollute like mad as well. We say we don't have to pollute like mad because we're already relatively prosperous. Let's see what we can do to cut down and to make our situation and the world's situation better. You know, like we could give solar farms to countries that are interested. We don't turn up at a country's doorstep and say, hey, we're giving you a solar farm whether you want it or not. We actually find out what they would like. And we say, okay, well, we can do this. It's kind of anti-capitalism, isn't it? The antithesis of capitalism. People were taking the profits that they'd saved on their energy bills from this scheme and then given that money 
a way, reinvested it elsewhere so that other people could develop theirs and just keep like paying those profits forward and forward. I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? That's an example of a simple rule of a complex system in yeah. of itself is something that replicates and expands like a virus in opposition to the way capitalism yeah, works. Yeah. It is also demonstrating a non-extractive economy to some extent. I mean, mm. obviously not completely because solar panels come from somewhere. When we look at traditional societies, gift economies were normal. And as I've said, they were political and all that kind of stuff. You didn't give without reason. And this was most of our history. Most of our history. And I mean, if you think in families, parents give to their children, children give to their parents. It's how humans generally function. Okay, which isn't to say that we're not competitive and we're not dickheads sometime and all that sort of stuff. But we function both competitively and cooperatively and our system only allows us to behave competitively. Yeah, and I think that's interesting because if you were saying, all right, capitalism isn't working, let's end it today, yeah. that would be unrealistic, really. Absolutely. Well, it would also be disastrous. <laughs> right, and disastrous <laughs> because we rely on this system. Yeah. But this is an example of something that isn't capitalism that occurs inside capitalism. Yeah. And I guess what I got from reading that study and understanding what you were writing about was that capitalism and other systems come in gradients. We don't live in a 100% capitalist system. Capitalism is very dominant, yep. but it can be reduced. Other systems can be increased. Yep. And we can change the dials on these things. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think it is really important to remember that non-capitalist systems are natural human systems. Thank you, Dr. Jonathan Marshall, for speaking with me. Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology, Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. We're in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can listen to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Lawrence Bull. Thanks for listening.